today's guest, Roa Rimawi, here today to speak to us about your brothers. My mom called, she said, Joad is gone. Please tell me that the offer is okay because I can't handle losing them both. The smartest, most compassionate, kindest, and purest souls I've ever met. It's not just our loss. It's the loss of their whole community. And it's even the loss of the world. Israeli soldiers would wake us up pointing their rifles and the snipers at our faces. The first time I traveled outside Palestine, I never encountered a checkpoint. And I was like, why don't you people have checkpoints? Because if you do consider Palestinians as a human, you would understand why they choose to defend themselves. Bare-chested children throwing the stones against one of the strongest military forces in the world. This is what is described as clashes. Stone throwing is not about the stones themselves. It's about the message the stone delivers. When Palestine is free, it's going to be because of people like Jawad and Tafir. Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Palestine Pod, the weekly podcast where we break down the latest headlines dealing with Palestine from all over the world and bring you stories, commentary, and interviews with the aim of supporting the Palestinian struggle for decolonization, justice, and equal rights. I'm one of your hosts, Lara E. You might know me from Instagram as at Girl, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mikey B. What's up, y'all? Mikey B on TikTok, Michael Scherzer on Instagram. And you can call me Mikey Intifada if you're trying to make talking about Jesus illegal in the place he was born. They'd be like, he who must not be named was born in that church that settlers destroyed. I mean, honestly, the comedy is writing itself, Michael, these days. Before we get into today's episode, please like, comment, and subscribe if you hang out with us on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast app, subscribe and leave a review. As always, you can find our full episodes and sources on palestinepod.com. And if you want to get involved in the conversation, reach out to us at palestinepod at gmail.com and give us a follow on Instagram at the palestinepod. Find us also on Patreon, where you get early access to the Palestine Pod episodes and additional podcasts per week. It's called the Patreon Pod a little more laid back. We talk politics, Palestine, pop culture, and we get a little more personal. We're also hosting our monthly Zoom happy hours with our Patreon subscribers only. So really exciting stuff. Check us out on patreon.com slash Palestine pod. Today's guest is Dr. Roa Rimawi. She's a medical doctor and researcher in neuroscience, mental health, and pediatrics. And she is coming to us live from Occupied Palestine. Welcome to the Palestine Pod. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here with you guys and um, to get to be part of this amazing project. Thank you so much. Uh, how was your trip to Qatar? It was nice. The part I loved the most was meeting new people, uh, getting to be connected to a new amazing people. Everyone was so kind. They wanted to help. Everyone was like so, so kind. And that's what I loved the most. I always love to be surrounded by people who who actually care about the Palestinian cause, who who always want to help in any way, who come to you and they they start like asking, what could we do? Like, what, what how can we help you? It, it means a lot to us. So every time in such events, I, I feel like it is so rewarding uh, to be part of, uh, of it. Did you see Adnan's TED Talk? Of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Adnan loves you so much. Like oh, he thinks you guys are besties. I don't know if he's delusional or. Oh, he's so right. He's no, so he's right. right. <laughs> we love him so much. Yeah, I was telling him that I'm going to be in the Palestine pod with uh, Lara and Michael. He was like, 
these are my besties. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, that warms my heart so much. That yeah. like honestly makes me want to cry because like yeah. we we met Adnan through this project. Michael like saw his work online. I think it was on TikTok, but or maybe just Instagram. But Instagram, I think. Yeah, yeah. just Instagram. But and then he was like, "Yeah, we got to have this guy on. He's in Palestine. He's in Jerusalem, and everything." And I, yeah. I just started looking at his page and I just fell in love with everything he was doing, just the way that he yeah. narrates life in Palestine, you know, the the visuals, the way that he has, he's able to laugh about the oppression and, and, and so yeah. much so that he's doing it in real time. Also, Adnan's personal story, like everything he's been through, he's also had his own struggles with health and everything. And sure. And and he has such a good attitude that you are yeah. immediately drawn to him. You just can't help but want to be around him. And I think True. it's so obvious. Everybody can yeah. see it because yeah. everyone wants to be his friend. Exactly. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. He's he's literally the kindest one I met in Qatar. Uh, I didn't know him in person, so it was the first time that I meet him in person in Qatar. So you so... don't know each other from Palestine. No, I like I follow him on social media, but I, I never met him in person. So it was the first time for us to meet in person in Qatar. And he was literally the kindest one. Like he, he wanted to support me in every way. He didn't want me to feel as an outsider. So he wanted me to be involved in everything. He shared all of his preparation for the talk and everything. He introduced me to people, got me connected to many amazing people. But yeah, he's amazing. Adnan is amazing. And I the thing I love about him, is his dark humor like he's always joking <laughs> about all of the catastrophes <laughs> that I tell I us. tell him all the time like I follow professional comedians Adnan makes me laugh the hardest I of know. anybody on Instagram <laughs> well he's so funny without even putting the effort you know like yeah, he's yeah. just funny yeah. <laughs> without doing anything he's not trying just by being himself yeah, yeah exactly. he's not yeah. trying he's not trying yeah. it's just yeah. it's his perspective it's his, his outlook on things yeah and are you now still in school are you working are you taking some time for yourself what are you uh, like, doing on yeah. a daily basis yeah yeah i actually graduated from medical school in uh, july 2022 so i'm still a recent medical graduate and here in Palestine, we have to do a year of internship after graduating in order to get our license. So that's what I'm doing currently. I still have uh, five more months to do of training to get my, my license and be professionally a doctor. So, yeah. Amazing. Mabruk, Habibti. Yeah. You may, Thank like, you. honestly, I just love to meet the 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 sons and daughters of palestine and just I to know. see like how accomplished you all are living on your land and just doing amazing things and it's just remarkable and you have a very sweet soul and it, it just shows so much so i'm just so honored and 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 happy to have you here i honestly i'm going to start crying yeah. and we haven't even started the interview <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I was like, we have to do introductions. I have my tissues, and I recommend that you both have. So you're gonna need them. I know. I'm like already crying. I can't. Ra, thank you for being here. You're you're obviously here today to to speak to us about your brothers, and I I want to get into their story and the campaign of justice that you're now engaged in, trying to seek for for them after they were killed on November 29th, but. Before we get into that, I, I want to learn a little bit more about 
them in happier times. Because I think it's it's unfortunate that we always start the stories of Palestinian yeah. martyrs with their deaths. They are not yeah. just their deaths. They are not the moment that they were taken from us. Yeah. They are everything before that. Exactly. And I want to know who your brothers are. So will you tell us about them? Of course. Uh, tell us about your childhood, how you grew up and what they were doing, you know, what they were, what they studied, what they were working as and what your relationship was like. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for bringing this perspective in which you put the focus and shed the light on their lives and who they were as humans, because it is one of the issues that I noticed and we encounter is that pe when people talk about Jawad and Zafar, they only talk about their death, how we lost them, how we're de dealing with the loss, how our life changed after them. And this is actually not the part that we love talking about the most. It's always hard to talk about all of these tragic details, but the part that we always love to bring up and to talk about and uh, to keep it alive is who they were and what our relationship was like, what we used to do, what our childhood was like, the happy times we got to share, the memories we got to make together. I always love to speak about all of these details. Thank you for focusing on this. It means a lot uh, to me and to everyone who lost a family member who was killed by Israeli occupation forces. I'm 24. I'm the eldest sibling in my family. I have four brothers, Jawad, Zafar, and the twins, Muhammad and Aus and a sister, her name is Rand. So uh, I'm 24. Uh, Jawad, well, Jawad was supposed to turn uh, 23 in uh, January 6th. But unfortunately, we lost Jawad on November 29th. On the same day, we lost Lafer. The fact that we stopped counting the years at 22 is devastating because I just realized that I can't say that Joet is 23, and that he's, he's going to always be just a 22-year-old boy. And it's it's hard every time we realize this. It's it's never easy. Joet was supposed to be 23, and Dafir is 19 years old, and the twins are 14 years old, and Rand is 16 years old. So I'm the eldest in the family. And when I think of our childhood, I actually... I think we had a happy childhood uh, and that's what I always used to say like we lived a very happy childhood in a very loving family very supportive parents who uh, who gave us love who raised us to be the best versions of ourselves but at the same time as I grow older and as I realize uh, the tragedies uh, that happened to us the traumas that we went through uh, as children I realized that it was not as happy as I think because our childhood is it's it's not different from any other Palestinian childhood. It's always filled with traumas, many tragedies at this very young age. Like in uh, I I will never forget um, the memories of the raids that happened because most of my childhood memories actually when I was three or four years old are actually about those raids because they were very frequent. They would raid our village, Betrima. I live in in Betrima. It is a village, uh, thirty minutes away from Ramallah in the West Bank. So they would uh, raid our village, and we would be awakened by the loud sound of bombing. 
and them uh, on our front door. And sometimes they would even, the Israeli soldiers would wake us up by pointing their rifles and the snipers at our faces. And imagine how traumatizing that is for a child who's still two or three years old. We used to wake up in panic, terror. I remember how hard Jawad used to cry. And I always had to act brave in front of him because I'm, I'm the eldest, you know. I felt like I have to protect them and to make them feel as if it is okay, as if I'm not afraid because I didn't want them to be that that much frightened. So I used to act brave and collected in front of them despite the great panic that I used to feel during these attacks. And they would get us out of the house in the middle of the night. We would stay in the streets in the cold nights, waiting for them to to finish whatever they are doing in our house. And once we get back, we'd always find uh, broken furniture or our uh, clothes are torn apart and all even our toys are destroyed. And these raids were very frequent. They used to happen almost on daily basis. So it's never it's never easy. And the problem is that as a child, you don't even recognize that this is not normal. You think that this is the normal. So I I never I never understood that what we're going through is actually something abnormal and it is so traumatizing and a child should never experience this. I thought that everyone is living the same. So I remember the first time I traveled outside Palestine, we went to Jordan and we we never encountered a checkpoint. And I was like, why why don't you people have checkpoints? Because for me to get from my village to Ramallah, which is the main city, it it takes 30 minutes, but it never took us 30 minutes. The least was an hour because of the checkpoints that we had to pass and wait while going through them. So I, I was actually surprised that other people don't even have checkpoints. They don't even wait. They don't even, they don't have rates. They don't get arrested. They don't get questioned. Every time I realized that what I went through is not considered the normal. It just hit me hard and it made me realize that our childhood was not as happy and easy as I thought it to be. It actually was very traumatizing and and it was not easy, not for me, not for Jawad, not for Dafer. And uh, it's, it's never easy for any child to go through this at this young age. I still remember Betrima massacre, which happened in 2001. I was still three years old by that time, and Jawad was a baby, uh, less than two years old, and Dafer was not born yet. Fifteen Palestinians got killed during the massacre, and hundreds were injured, and many houses were demolished and completely destroyed. And the thing I remember the most is the loud sound of bombing, and Jawad's crying the whole time. He never stopped crying during the massacre. Mom thought that our house would be one of the houses that will get bumped while we're still in it. So she decided to take us to our neighbor's house because she thought that this might be safer. In order to get to our neighbor's house, we had to cross the street in which Israeli soldiers were pointing their rifles and snipers ready to shoot at any time we do something threatening. So my mom told me that we need to raise our hands up in the air to make them understand that we cause no threat and we just want to cross the road to get to our neighbor's house. And because Jawad was a baby, he couldn't walk. She had to carry him and I had to walk on my own. So I remember walking on the tips of my toes and raising my hands up in the air. 
really bad that it hit it hit it, it, it hit me a lot i i could feel my muscles getting ruptured because i stretched them way too bad because i wanted them to see me i thought that i'm still so tiny so short if they don't see that i'm raising my head my hands up in the air they might consider me as a threat and they would shoot me and imagine how hard it is for a child to go through this it is so traumatizing that I don't remember anything from my childhood when I was about three or four years old, except for those memories. I remember them in all of their details, all the specific tiny, teeny details. I remember them because of how traumatizing they were to me. And same applies to Joad. Joad, even though he was a baby, he was still than two, he was less than two years old. He actually, for a month after the massacre, could not sleep in our house because to him, it was connected to the loud sound of bumping. So mom used to take him to my uncle's house and let him fall asleep there and then bring him to our house. So imagine going through all of this and living this terror, living under this oppression, injustice. It is, it is never easy. And the, to me, the worst part is that you don't even realize that what you're going through is, is not something normal. Because as a child, you think that this is what normal life looks like. But as you grow older, you start to realize how hard it was for you and how hard it was for your younger siblings and your family. But the thing that I always consider impressive in Palestinians is uh, the fact that we always find a way to channel the negativities into something positive. Because the thing that, like, in the massacre, during that time when I was uh, raising my hands up in the air, uh, frightened that they might shoot me, that was the moment that I knew when I grew up, I want to do something to help Palestinian children. I did not know how. But I knew it. I knew that I'm going to be someone who's who's going to help Palestinian children. As I grew older, I realized that I want to do this by becoming a pediatrician and by becoming a doctor who's able to help improve the healthcare system in Palestine and to improve the child healthcare. So we always have our way to to channel these negativities into something positive. And Joad and Zafar did the exact same thing. They always wanted to change this reality. They always dreamed of a better future. And they had a lot of ways to do this. Uh, one of them was establishing a center in our uh, village. So because we live in a village, we don't usually have much activities to be enrolled in during the summer vacation. We don't have any summer camps. So Joad and Zafar with a group of aspiring, motivated youth. Uh, Jawad was still um, about 15 years old. Zafar was younger by three years. So Zafar was about um, 12 years old, 11, 12. They started a center in the, uh, in the village and they uh, started arranging summer camps. They would go camping with the children. Uh, they would arrange uh, football matches running, table tennis, volleyball. They always tried to, to create a positive impact in their community, whether in their village, in the school, in the university. And Jawad and Zafar are genuinely, I believe that I have the most wonderful brothers on earth. And I don't think that this is my opinion as their biased sister, but I know that everyone will echo this. Everyone who met them 
well echo those sentiments uh, because they were Jawad and Dafer, it's hard for me to say they were as I'm still denying the fact that they are gone so they are the smartest most compassionate kindest and purest souls I've ever met and I remember always telling them you need to learn to put yourself a priority. You need to stop being so giving. You need to think of yourself. And they would always tell me, no, the thing that brings us the satisfaction is helping people around us. He would always help everyone around them in whatever they need. I remember one, one of the, one of Zafar's colleagues actually told us that before Zafar was killed, before like five days, he asked them about a girl who was studying, one of his colleagues, she was studying computer engineering as well. And he asked them about her financial situation because he heard that she can't pay the university fees. And when they told uh, when they told him that she can't afford paying the fees, he told them that I'm going to do my best to get her a scholarship because she deserved to continue her education, even though he never got a scholarship for himself in the first place. These are Jawad and Dafer. Jawad is a genuine support system for everyone around him, for his family, for his friends, for everyone who knew them. That's why I, I always say that their loss is not something easy and it will never be because people like Jawad and Dafer will never be replaceable. You can't find people to support you, to love you, to accept you in the same way they did. And it's not just our loss. It's the loss of their whole community. And it's even the loss of the world. I believe that when we lose aspiring youth such as Jawad and Dafer, it's the world's loss. When we lose people with huge potentials at this young age, Zafar at 19 and Jawad at 22, it is the world's loss. So yeah, these are Jawad and Zafar, not just my siblings, but my favorite people, my closest friends, and the ones I love the most. You speak of them so beautifully and and you can feel from your words how close you you are to their souls. You know, alhamdulillah, because we believe that we will be reunited with the people that we love. As Muslims, we believe that. And so if there's any small amount of comfort that can be provided in knowing that you will meet your favorite people again, I think it's important to to, to have that perspective. It, it doesn't make today easier necessarily, but at least... It can maybe have you looking forward <laughs> to that day. I, I want to go back to what you said about how you thought it was normal. You thought the checkpoints were normal. You thought the, the night raids on Palestinian families were normal and having snipers yeah. and, and soldiers point their guns at you. Um, I think what's what's interesting with that is that the trauma isn't happening like in the moment. Yeah. You, you sort of experience the trauma when you realize that it's not normal. Like the trauma response happens much later. There's like this delay yeah. um, and it comes out in, in different times or even when you're older. And that's something that every Palestinian is dealing with, certainly yeah. on the ground, but also in diaspora of just putting together the story of their life, looking back on it and then realizing, oh yeah, that not everybody's going through that. Yeah. Not everybody had to flee 
not everybody was expelled. Not everybody was made a refugee. Not everybody ha- had to, you know, start over in a brand new country, pass through a refugee camp, end up growing up in a country that had nothing to do with where they're from, just because of the fact that that's where they ended up and being put into forced exile while your country is is going through something like this that is ongoing is is very difficult for the entire Palestinian society on the ground sure. and abroad. Sure. Have you ever had a chance to live outside of Palestine? I traveled a month to the United States. I did a month of a clinical training while I was in my sixth year. And I think that this is the longest period that I got to spend outside Palestine. How'd you enjoy our checkpoints? <laughs> Very enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. I know how you experience being outside of Palestine in the U.S. psychologically. Yeah. Yeah. What was it like for you? Especially you were, you know, you were an adult. So yeah, I, I felt I, I realized how unfortunate we are. That's that's the thing that I realized the most. I I remember calling my family and telling them that, hey, mom and dad, people here are actually like people in the movies. They wake up from the morning to go for running, to walk their dogs and uh, to get back to have a breakfast and then go to their job. They get back happy. Their pets are waiting for them. It's it's like in the movies, and we we never we never had this in Palestine. We never lived that fairy tale life, you know. Our life has always been full with uh, checkpoints, murder, horrible news. We often like when you wake up, you open uh, your Instagram, let's say, and you see that three Palestinians were killed, and this would be the first thing that you start your day with. And then as you go to your work, you have to cross multiple checkpoints. And sometimes you have to wait for 30 minutes, an hour, maybe even more. It depends on the mood of the soldier in that day. And then after you get to your job, for me, I work in the hospital so many times. But um, and like having a rotation in the ER, we would find uh, patients who who would come because they were injured by Israeli forces. So I realized how unfortunate we are. And it made me think that how different our lives can be just because we were born in different areas and in different regions. And it's not something that we even choose. I never chose to be born as Palestinian. I never chose to be raised in Palestine. Yet I felt like I'm paying the price and um, living this hard life. So I remember like telling my family, people here are actually happy. And when they are worried, they are worried because they can't travel this year as much as they want to. For us in Palestine, like only rich, fortunate families would be able to travel every year. Most families don't even travel outside Palestine. So I felt how different we are and how hard our life is. And I I never realized this because in Palestine, you think that this is the normal again. But when you go outside, you start to realize how different people are and how different our lives are. So that, that was the thing that I thought about the most. I thought about how unfortunate we are. The reason I asked my question is because I want people to understand what it is that makes Palestinians struggle for their liberation. I want people to realize that us being engaged in a liberation struggle, us being resisting 
trying to fight for our freedom is something that anyone, anyone who, you know, has half a brain cell, anyone with any amount of logic would also do. Exactly, exactly. And that's that's what I tell every time I'm asked why would Jawad and Zafir choose to go and throw stones. The thing behind the Palestinian resistance and the stone throwing, uh, we do realize the asymmetry of power here. We do realize that this is an occupation and we are the occupied people and we don't even have enough power to stand in their face and to stand against them. But we don't want to lose our dream of a freedom. That's it. We, we don't want to lose the hope of freedom. And when you ask me, like, why would Jawad and Bafa decide to throw stones? I think that the real question should be, what else would you do if you were in our position? Because imagine losing three of your friends. Jawad lost his first friend who was shot and killed by Israeli forces uh, while he was in the 11th grade. He lost his second friend who was shot in front of his eyes during a military raid here in our village in Betrima. His name was Muhammad. And then he lost his third friend who was shot also by Israeli occupation forces while he was in his third year in university. So imagine losing three of your friends. Two of them were actually shot dead in front of your eyes. Imagine living this traumatizing childhood where most of your childhood memories are about massacres, are about the horrible crimes, are about uh, the loud sound of bombing, the the shooting, the killing. Imagine living under this oppression and under this injustice for for your whole life. What else would you do? I think that it is one of the ways to dehumanize Palestinians when we actually blame them for resisting and when we actually blame them for defending themselves. Because how could the world actually be convinced that military tanks, jeeps, troops, guns, bombs is considered as self-defense and throwing stones by the locals who were born and raised in this village is considered terrorism? How is the world actually convinced by this. If someone invades your town and comes to your house in the middle of the night and points their gun at your face and at the faces of your children, what would you do? What would a normal human reaction be? I think that the Palestinian resistance in all of its forms is just a normal human reaction towards the horrible things that we went through because of the occupation. And if you do consider Palestinians as humans, you would understand why they choose to defend themselves. And the thing that breaks my heart the most is the fact that these confrontations in their simplistic reality are young, bare-chested children and young men throwing stones against one of the strongest military forces in the world. This is what is hypocritically described as clashes. Bare-chested children and young youth who are throwing stones against one of the strongest military forces in the world. And most of the people who get injured in these confrontations are under the age of 25. People who are strong and who are still driven 
towards the hope of freedom. They want to do something. They want to defend their community. They want to defend their land. They want to stand for their principles. And they do this with whatever they have, which is most of the time are just rocks and stones. So when when you think about all of all of this, like I, I always tell people, I don't want you to believe the Palestinian narrative. But I want you to listen with an open mind. That's all I'm asking for. Just listen to our stories and listen to our narrative with an open mind. Because I believe that the truth is so obvious that it can't be hidden. And if you just give yourself the chance to see it, you're going to see it. You just need to open your eyes. Oh, I want you to believe the Palestinian narrative. That's It's the truth. So believe the truth. Yeah, exactly. It's the truth. Unfortunately, the world is so misleading. It's always the people who condemn Palestinian resistance who would never accept the slightest inconvenience in their own life. Yeah. And that's and that just goes to show how disingenuous it is for them to make that condemnation and how, how much of it really is rooted in, in dehumanization of us as a people. The thing that I think is so obvious is when when children choose to defend themselves by themselves you should realize that you have failed them. When a child reaches the point where he is convinced that he has to defend himself by himself with whatever he has, even if if just with drops and the stones, the world must realize that they have failed them. Zionists will be like, Palestinian children are terrorists, but Jabotinsky is my hero. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. Can I ask you about November 29th? Yeah, of course. When they went out to resist? Yeah, so so it all started at around 5 a.m. I was sleeping and my mother came to me and she woke me up by screaming that Jawad and Dafer were both injured and we need to go to the hospital. That was the only information we had. We did not know how severe their injuries were. We did not know how they got injured. All we knew was that they were injured and we need to go to the hospital. So we went to a hospital in Salfit, which is basically a city around uh, 30 minutes away from my home. And as soon as we got to the hospital, they told me that Jawad had to undergo an urgent surgery. And Dafer will be transferred to another hospital in Ramallah because he needs a thoracic surgeon, which was not available in the hospital in Salfit. I had to decide who would stay with Jawad and who would get in the ambulance with Dafer. So I decided to get in the ambulance with Dafer and let mom and dad with Jawad. As I got to the ambulance, Dafer was unconscious. He was intubated and I was, I could see that he was injured in the chest. And I asked the doctor about his injury and he told me that he was shot three times in the chest and it's very severe. I was looking at the monitor, checking his vital signs, while our first priority was to actually keep him stable and keep him alive. The driver of the ambulance had to to stop and ask about whether there were any military checkpoints along the route. And he had to do this because if we were encountered by an Israeli military checkpoint, we would be waiting for questioning and we would risk the chance of my brother dying. And to make the the matters even worse, they would take his body, let him bleed to death, and they would rob us even from a proper burial. Well, our first priority was to keep him alive, everyone in the ambulance was for a moment fixated on finding a route without checkpoints. And 
as I was witnessing all of this, I, I remember I wanted to scream. How how could this happen? Like my, my brother is bleeding in front of my eyes and we're losing him. And yet we're asking about the checkpoints. How how did the world allow such such situation to happen? And then we managed to get him to the hospital within 20 minutes. And fortunately, without encountering any Israeli checkpoints. And as soon as we got to the hospital, his heart stopped. He was, he, there was no pulse. So they started doing the chest compressions. And even though as a doctor, I could tell that things are bad, things are not promising, you still want to believe that the worst scenario would not happen. You still want to hold on to the hope that we both will make it. I remember looking at his closed eyes and wanting him to open it, to open them and to get back to life. And they kept doing the chest compressions. My mom called me and she said that Joad is gone. He's no longer alive. Please tell me that the offer is okay because I can't handle losing them both. And that's when I realized that the offer is not coming back to life. How could he? He would never leave Joad alone. So that was the moment when I realized that I lost Joad and Dafer forever. Later, when we asked about the details of what happened, how, how they got injured, we knew that uh, it all started when the Israeli occupation forces decided to raid a Palestinian village called Kifrayn, which is 10 minutes away from my home. And Jawad and Dafer were among the youth who rushed to defend their community by throwing the stones. I guess that the stones they threw were threatening enough for the Israeli occupation forces who had the most dangerous guns. One of the strongest military forces in the world, they were threatened so much by the stones that Dafer and Jawad threw that they shot Dafer three times in the chest and they shot Jawad with an explosive bullet, which exploded in his body. It caused destruction in his main blood vessels and perforations in his small and large intestines. So that was an execution in cold blood. There was no chance for Joad and Dafer to survive this. And I keep wondering, how could a stone be so threatening that they executed them in this brutal way and nothing happened? No one was held accountable and the world just continued as if nothing happened, as if we didn't lose them. And I still cannot accept this. And I don't think I will ever be able to accept this. I'm their older sister. And I always feel like I needed to protect them. And the fact that they were killed in that brutal way, and I couldn't do anything, it just breaks my heart. And I don't think I will ever accept this. Even acknowledging it is hard. Acknowledging that they are gone and forever, it's so hard because you never imagine something like this happening to your family. Even though you wake up every morning 
you can use that other Palestinians got killed. You never imagine something like this happening to your family. Did you know that they had gone out to defend the other village? I had no idea was sleeping. And I always, I used to have these discussions with Joad and Lafer about the confrontations, the stone throwing, the occupation, the political situation. And I remember that they would always tell me stone throwing is not about the stones themselves. It's about the message that the stone delivers. If Israeli occupation forces raided our villages, and we we did not show any kind of refusal. It's like we normalized the occupation, we normalized the raids, we normalized the killing, and we don't want this to happen. We must send a message of refusal. We must send a message that we refuse this, we refuse the occupation, we refuse the raids, we refuse the killing, we refuse the injustice, we refuse the oppression. And that's what threatened them. It's never about the stone. How could a stone be threatening so much that they would shoot them three times in the chest and they would shoot Jawad with an explosive bullet? It does not make sense. It's not logical. It's the message behind the stones that actually threatens them. It's the same thing that made them kill the journalist Shireen Abu Aqle. It's the same reason that they to hide the truth. They want to hide the truth. They don't want aspiring youth with the huge potentials like Jawad and Zafar to, to remind the rest of the world that occupation is not normal and it must come to an end. So that's, that's why they killed them in cold blood. They are threatened by any Palestinian who has huge potentials, who stands against this occupation and who stands against uh, this apartheid. They don't want us to speak up. They don't want us to tell our truth. They don't want the rest of the world to know the reality about what's happening in Palestine. And I believe that this is what threatened them the most. They knew that people like Jawad and Zafar are so influential, so strong. They had the leadership skills. They were real leaders, role models with a huge impact on everyone around them. And people, figures like these, are always threatening for Israel. Obviously, yeah. Your I, I, your point about normalizing the occupation is so so true and important. The resistance is in part symbolic. It's also uh, literal, but but it is also symbolic in the sense that we know that these stones are not going to dismantle the occupation physically. Yeah, but their continued attempts to challenge occupation wherever they see it makes it more difficult for them to achieve their aims, which is total control over all of Palestine. And the reality is in 75 years of their occupation state, of their settler colonial project, they have not succeeded in expelling all of the Palestinians. They have not succeeded in taking all of our land. We still remain on our land. It's true that Many of us are in exile. It's true that they managed to expel many of us and that generations were born in exile. It's true that they are preventing so many of us from going back to our original homes. It's All of that is true. But it's also true that you and your family are still in Palestine and so many others are still in Palestine and that you're a living testament to the Palestinian story and the Palestinian struggle 
and the Palestinian fight for liberation. And every single time they drive a tank into a Palestinian city or they drop bombs on Palestinians in Gaza, they are trying to finish the job that they started 75 years ago. But people like your brothers and all Palestinians who are engaged in resistance are the reason that they will not succeed. So mm -hmm. I salute your brothers and all of the other martyrs that our Palestinian family, our large Palestinian family has known since the beginning of our freedom struggle. Yeah, I consider them all my brothers and sisters. I consider your brothers my brothers and I will pray for them. And, and this is what we should all as Palestinians be doing, taking care of one another and and feeling for one another because we are all we have, right? In, in the sense that you're right, the world has turned away, but Palestinians have one another and we will liberate ourselves. I am sure of this. And your brother's lives and death will not be in vain. They are forever marked in the history of Palestine. Their stories, their names, you know, they lived and died for something. When Palestine is free, it's going to be because of people like Jawad and Tafir. Yeah. Yeah. And so you should be I'm you should be way. you should be very proud of them. And your mother should, your mother should be so proud of them too. I am. I am. We've always been. And the thing that I always I always try to tell is that we never we never choose death. We never, as Palestinians, we never choose death. We want to live. We want life. Jawad and Zafir had a huge passion for life. And they had massive dreams. Jawad graduated from Birzeit University, one of the top universities in Palestine, with a bachelor's degree in business administration. And he worked in the Arab Islamic Bank. And he used to tell me, I don't want to work in a company. I want to own it. Zafar, who, who graduated high school with one of the highest scores in Palestine. Zafar is literally one of the smartest people I've ever met. He, he has huge dreams for the future, huge potentials. And I always looked forward to Zafar's future specifically because I believe that he's going to be something huge. He's going to be so successful because I knew that he had the abilities and he had the potentials to do so, to achieve whatever he wanted. And Zafar went to Birzeit University to study computer engineering as well. And he would always tell mom, my mom, don't ever think that Roa is going to be the richest among us because she's a doctor. I'm going to be the rich one and I'm going to travel the world with you. And the fact that Joad was killed at 22 before starting his own project. And the fact that Dafir was killed at 19 before traveling to any country is devastating. And that's that's what I what I always try to tell people is that we all have huge dreams. We all love life and we want to live. But being a Palestinian, sometimes you don't even have this option. You're not privileged enough to be alive. I would say that they both are something huge. Yeah. I'm sure you'd much rather spend your days walking your dog, going to the gym, 
going to the beach, planning your vacations, doing the things that most people in most privileged places around the world are engaged in. I'm sure that's what you'd rather be doing. I'm sure you'd rather not be passing through checkpoints. You'd rather not be seeing soldiers all over your land everywhere you go. You'd rather not be engaged in mourning your 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 beloved brothers. It's not a life that you would choose out of luck or choice or or interest or whatever it may be. It's not there's no there's no reason for it. Every human aspires for the good things in life and it's it's so racist to assume that that's not the case. Yeah, it's exactly. fundamentally racist to assume that people who are from a different place don't want the same pleasures in life that you and your family enjoy. And you know, especially Palestinians because I'm like on I'm on Instagram and I'm looking at Adnan's stories of iftar and you know, in Jerusalem and like, and I'm just like, ma fi ahla min ambiance taba al uds. Ahla ambiance. It's the best. Like, there's nothing better than just looking at these scenes from Palestine. Yeah. It's so beautiful. And at the same time, it is so dark. Yeah. Because of the daily reality. But, it, but, but, but again, Palestinians, because we always love and choose life amidst all this darkness, we are still having our iftars, we are still, you know, nishar, and we are enjoying each other and having good friendships and, you know, getting together for tea and coffee and talking all night and, and laughing in the streets. And, and we're doing this amidst an occupation, which is making our lives yeah. impossible, but we're still doing it. Exactly. And I'm sitting here looking at his stories being like, I wish I was there because that looks more fun than what I'm doing. And I'm like, how can I be thinking this? Because he's also under occupation. But that's yeah. the power of this Palestinian resilience. And I don't like to talk about resilience because I don't think we should be forced to be in this role of the Palestinian who is resilient. I think it ends up being like a stereotype and 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 it boxes us into something when we just want to live and be human. But it's... It is, it is real. It is true. It's true. Palestine is so beautiful. It's a light that shines so bright that the occupation tries to dim it, right? But it reminds me of that Yasser Arafat quote where it's like, you can't hide the sun with your finger forever. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the really frustrating and 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 very traumatic aspects of this whole thing is the aftermath right because usually when something so unjust happens in another part of the world you can try to engage in an in in an in an exercise of seeking accountability you know the wrongdoers be brought to justice the problem is when the wrongdoers are the occupation and you're the occupied there is no justice nothing happens can can you give the audience a sense of this nothingness i mean is there any way for you to seek accountability is there any avenue is there any method what do you do when the occupation takes away your family members like this who do, who do you complain to do you even complain yeah that that was the hardest part because i don't think that a sister who lost two of her brothers on the same day in that tragic way should be standing here in front of everyone trying to convince them that the killer of her brothers must be held accountable. 
a sister must be given the chance to grieve. That's all we're asking for. But obviously, this is another thing that we Palestinians don't get to have. So I remember when when they both were announced, we had so many journalists coming to us trying to ask questions and trying to do interviews. And I remember feeling so pressured to speak up because I felt like I have to do something. I, I need to do something. I can't, I can't just accept that they were both killed and there's nothing to be done. So, and and it's never easy. It's never easy to talk about the hardest thing that happened in your life while you're trying to deny it. Because as you know, the first stage of grief is denial. And I'm in that stage now. And it's never easy to remind yourself that this actually happened, to acknowledge the facts. Yet, I always feel pressured to do it because this is the only way to seek justice. We have no other choice. I I turn to social media, as many Palestinians do. I always try to post about them, to do interviews, to, to participate in podcasts, in anything that, that would shed the light on their story and on what happened to me, to them, to our family, because this is the only way. There's, there's, there's no accountability, nothing that you can legally do in the face of occupation. And the idea that we don't even know the face or the name of the soldier who who killed them is so frustrating. And when I think that he got to continue his life as if he did nothing, he might even be rewarded for what he did. He, he, he might now go to his family, hug his children, have a breakfast, continue his life as if nothing happened. It just makes me feel like I'm losing my mind. I cannot accept this. I cannot accept this reality. I always try to convince myself that they can take their body from me by shooting them. But they can never make them actually not here with me spiritually. I, I still can feel their presence. And they are still my brothers. And I will always say, I have four brothers, Joad, Bafar, Hamad, and Aus. They can never take that away from me. And they can never make me accept what happened. I'm going to always choose to speak up. I'm going to always choose to tell my story, to talk about Joad and Dafer, because in this deep darkness, I still choose to look for the light. And I still choose to believe in humanity. And I still choose to believe that there are good people out there. And that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to tell my story in the hope that someone would actually hear it and change his mind. And he would see the reality about the Palestinian struggle, and he would realize that occupation must come to an end. And I believe that this is the only way to keep speaking up until the world realizes that this has has to come to an end. And that's the only thing that I'm able to do. Did the occupation release any statements about the killing of your brothers? Yeah, yeah, they actually said that during the military raid in Kufrayn village, Things got violent and they are aware of two Palestinians being killed in that incident. Another two Palestinians being killed in that incident. That's how they reported the news. And it makes you see how 
worthless the lives of Palestinians are to them. Just another two Palestinians, nameless, faceless Palestinians, got killed. That's how they report the news. And to make things even worse, after they killed Jawad and Dafir, a month after maybe or something like this, they raided my village again. They did this multiple times, but during one of the raids, they actually started talking on the microphone, telling everyone, hey, uh, children and youth of Betrima, come to us, come now, so that we kill you as we killed Jawad and Dafir. Why are you hiding? Come to the streets, come to us, you're all going to be killed just as we killed Jawad and Dafir. And they went on the streets killing this on the microphones. This is the occupation that we're dealing with. This is the reality of Israel. This is the reality of occupation. They don't just kill us, but they actually... They enjoy it. They enjoy it, yeah. They enjoy it. I, 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 I can't understand that these could be humans just as we are. During one of the interviews, mom was saying, if you look at the faces of Jawad and Dafir, and please, I ask you to do so. If you don't know Jawad and Dafir, just please go and search and look at their faces. Look them in the eye because you can see how innocent they are and how beautiful they are. So mom was saying, when you see Jawad and Dafir, the first thing that comes to your mind is that you want to hug them. So how could they actually kill them? How could they shoot them? People like Jawad and Dafir, you just want to hug them, to get to know them, to be around them, to be their friend. How could they kill them? How could they shoot them? That's exactly the feeling I had. I saw a video of you dancing with your brothers and mm -hmm. it was a silly video and I, I don't even know the context but they just looked so happy and lighthearted and they looked like they were really funny. So funny. They would bring joy and laughter wherever they go. The funniest, literally the funniest. And me and my younger sister Rand, we always argue, who's funnier? Is it Jawad or Dafir? And sometimes we're like, no, I think Jawad is funnier. He made us laugh more. And sometimes, no, I think Dafir is funnier. And he made us laugh more. And we, they were so funny. They were the joy of our family. That's, that's the most realistic way to describe them. The joy and the pride of our family. And that's why we still feel stuck in November 29th. We can't move on. Like, okay, we wake up in the morning, we get dressed, we go to work. But I don't feel like life is moving on. And I don't feel like I'm stuck there. I'm stuck on that day. And I don't even want to process life without them. I don't want to think of all of the milestones that I'm going to be going through without them. And I can't imagine doing any kind of achievement without sharing it with them. And that's the thing about the grief, that even the happy things in your life, they become sad. Because the first thing that you would want to do is to share what you've done with them. And when you realize that you can do this, you just have a total breakdown. And that's what happened to me when I got my driver uh, driver's license. So I've been delaying this because I was busy with, with the studying, with the training. And I always had Joed and Dafer. Like they would always pick me up, uh, give me a ride whenever I needed 
so and it was all it was always more enjoyable with them like if i get to go in the car with joan and the put good music dance get to wherever i needed to go why would i even want to be driving alone so i kept just delaying this and then after they're gone i realized that i need to get my driver's license because obviously i i needed to drive i don't have anyone pick me up anymore so instead of being happy it was one of the hardest in my life because the first thing that I wanted to do is to call Jawad and tell him because he was the one who started teaching me how to drive and he was the one who started teaching me how to get in the car, control the steering, the brake and the fact that I, I couldn't share this with him made me realize that, okay, Jawad's not here. Jawad's actually gone. And that's, that's one of the hardest things about the grief. Everything in your life just turns to be something devastating and very sad. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you forever, but I also am mindful of your emotions. And this has been really heavy. And I want to thank you for sharing that with us. I know that it takes a lot of emotional energy to tell the same story over and over and over again. And my only hope is that it's a little bit cathartic in some way. Just no, thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Um, it's, was, it's always hard. It's never easy. But it makes me feel that I'm still playing the role of the older sister, you know, I'm still protecting them, protecting them from being forgotten, protecting them from not getting their justice. Um, I'm, I, I'm still playing that role and they can't take this away from me. I actually do have one more thing. It's not a joke. Uh, my grandmother passed. I, I was like having trouble dealing with it. And I felt like there was a bird who kept visiting me. And I was just wondering if you've had anything like that, any messages that you felt connected to? No, unfortunately, no. And I don't even dream about them. <laughs> and that's so annoying. Sometimes I get really mad at them and I'm like, hey, Jordan, offer you visit everyone's dream except me. What's going on? Like, why, why don't you come and visit me in my dreams? You don't get to do this. But I don't know, none of, none of these things happen to me. I'm also not a very spiritual person. I'm, I'm very logical. Someone who believes in evidence-based stuff and things like this. So maybe that's why these things are not happening to me. Maybe I'm not paying attention to them in the first place. That bird was my grandma. I won't hear anything different. <laughs> <laughs> um, well... It was, it was. I'm sure it was. <laughs> <laughs> we spoke to each other. Um, <laughs> look, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We uh, we so respect you and we appreciate your time. And yeah, you're you're amazing. And thank you. you know, I'm sure. Thank you for having me and for giving me yeah. the chance to share my story. Thank you so much. It means a lot to me. And I think now we're besties. It's not just Adnan and you guys, okay? <laughs> Let's make this clear. Absolutely. You're part of the club. I definitely echo Michael. And I think that Joad and Thafit are also very proud of you for keeping their story and their, their souls alive in what you're doing for them. And you're a very powerful and impactful and articulate speaker. And Thank you. even in such a very heavy topic, it's, it's just a incredible to listen to you um the emotions and, you. and the way that you think about things it's really i mean we're just so honored to have you here thank you in thank arabic you so and english no less 
<laughs> yeah, I thought I didn't even expect like some people. Some people are like really they've got great chemistry in one language, but you're doing it yeah. in two. Okay, really? Um, Because I'm yes. so insecure about having uh, like doing talks in English. No, and... Rua, Rua, you have oh, no you <laughs> should try. You should listen to me give a talk in Arabic. It is garbage. <laughs> okay, it is garbage that is not getting picked up on the streets of Paris right now. <laughs> You don't understand. Some people come on the the pod and and then they end up speaking Arabic half the time, and then it's just really? like, yeah, and then it's just me translating the Michael. Do a lot of guessing in the edit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I face I face a lot of difficulties in expressing my thoughts in English because, like, I I think if it's in Arabic, I would be speaking a lot about this, but. Now that it's in English, I only have like a few words to describe what I'm feeling, and it never feels adequate. It never feels enough. Inshallah, no, Kunyani and just deliver the message in the right way, and people would actually understand what I'm trying to say. Like get the things the way I want them to get it. Yeah, they will. They will. It's um, I mean, you can feel it too, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, you can feel it. Anyway, I just want to say Allah irhamhum for your brothers. Layer I mean, Rama. And um I mean the Arabic is so funny to be honest. I'm really happy Michael could make you laugh. I'm happy Michael could make you laugh in this. No, oh, like, it's funny. I just the fact that he's making me laugh during this horrible tragic time in my life. It proves that you're a great comedian. So Wow. Honestly, thank you so much. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, well, like, you're so funny, Michael. You're so funny. I'm going to clip that and listen to it when I'm having a tough time. <laughs> yeah, please do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's, folks. He's serious. <laughs> folks. <laughs> hey, hey. <laughs> folks, <laughs> that has been another episode of the Palestine Pod. Thank you so much for listening. Go ahead and find our full episodes and sources at www.palestinepod.com. Follow us on Instagram at the Palestine Pod. Send us an email at palestinepod at gmail.com and look for us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash palestinepod. That has been another episode of the pod. Thank you all so much for listening. Have a great day.